Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This Ben Jarofsky Show, Benny J. Bonus Interview is brought to you in part by the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 9, the International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 150, and the Chicago Federation of Labor. Benny J, take it away. Bonus time in the Ben Jarowski Show as I speak Friday, August 28, 2020 is the date. Uh, I'm just going to pick up the Chicago Tribune and tell you front page story. Teen charged with murder, other crimes, Wisconsin shootings. We've been talking about that all week on our show that uh, went, went down in Kenosha. And there's a picture of activists in my hometown of Evanston walking through the streets. Jacob Blake, uh, who was shot in Kenosha, is... Pride and joy of Evanston. He went to the same junior high I went to. He went to the same high school I went to. Uh, his grandfather was a big leader in uh, the city of Evanston. His family is well-known, Evanston family. So a lot of love in Evanston uh, for Jacob Blake and his family. Uh, as I do with all bonus guests, I ask my distinguished guests to introduce him or herself, and then we take it from there. So distinguished guest, introduce yourself. Hey, Ben, this is 35th Ward Alderman Carlos Ramirez Rosa. Yes, that Carlos that Ramirez Rosa. <laughs> no, you, you need to say no more. We've been promoting okay, your appearance on the show all day. Uh, it's been way too long since you've been last here. I, I think it may have been in May. Uh, the world has tra- changed significantly, Carlos, in so many ways. Well, I don't know if it's changed, but things have erupted uh, that have been repressed let's put it that way uh since the last time when you uh you were on the the show uh let's talk about kenosha i, I mentioned kenosha already and uh carlos of course is they call him the dean of the progressives in the chicago uh city council <laughs> no, 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 he was so, progressive so dean, long before it was fashionable i know the kid he's so, like 30 i don't even know how yeah well so, so a dean of a caucus means the longest serving member of that caucus i'm not the dean oh. of the progressive caucus but i am the dean of the socialist caucus being that i'm in my second term very good all right so that's clear. that's i sit corrected <laughs> um so uh carlos all right, let's talk about Kenosha and uh, what has gone down in Kenosha, both with the shooting of Jacob Blake and uh, the shooting of two citizens by Kyle Rittenhouse, who's a big fan of Donald Trump. Let's just give your general thoughts on what Kenosha uh, means uh, in this day and age. Well, you know, I, I think it's extremely frightening. Um, it's part of Chicagoland. It's just 60 miles north of us. Um, so this is something that happened at home. Um, both the, the shooting of Jacob Blake in his back in front of his children, another horrific incident of police brutality, of racist policing, um, of unconstitutional policing. And then we have people fighting for justice, raising their voices uh, as part of the movement for black lives. And they are met 
by what I describe as white supremacist violence. Um, you know, a, a young uh, white man who is very much into the back to blue movement, very much into this narrative of, you know, we need police to, you know, keep these, you know, dangerous people in place. And his mother drives him to Kenosha over state lines uh, with an AR-15 uh, and he ends up shooting three people and killing two. It is horrific. It is tragic. Um, I, I think that this is something that should alarm all of us, particularly here in Chicago, because this is happening in our backyard. What do you think it says about the Republican Party right now uh, that uh, Kyle Rittenhouse, the 17-year-old who did the shooting, is now being propped up on social media uh, as a hero? Well, you know, Trump ran a hate-filled campaign in 2016. He has governed from a place of hate. I think it continues that same anger, that same hate. Um, but I think it also shows that they are willing to divide our country in order to maintain power. I think that uh, it, it is white supremacy. Um, and, and unfortunately, this is not a new story in this country. If you look at all of the times that uh, the white populace has been worked up to commit acts of violence against the minority populace, against black people. It has always been done for the purposes of uh, political reasons. Actually, in the South, right, after the end of slavery, um, when you have uh, Reconstruction, uh, when you have an attempt to create equality between black men and white men, um, there was a call in a local paper, I forget the town, but essentially they begin to call for white supremacy. And they literally they say, we need white supremacy, we need white supremacy. And the local papers work the local white men up into a frenzy. They take up arms, they work with the local police, they work with local militias, and they go out and they hunt and kill and lynch black men to inflict racial terror, to say, get back in your place, to say, you are below us. And unfortunately, we've seen that time and time again. We saw it in the 1919 race riots. We call them race riots in the U.S., but in fact, what it is, it's acts of white supremacist terrorism against black people, against brown people. It happened in 1919 in the city of Chicago, where you had, you know, white vigilantes running through the streets, attacking black people, being supported by the cops. You saw it again in 1921 in Tulsa. You saw it in 1943 in California with the Zoot Suit riots, where that ire was directed towards Mexican men. And unfortunately, I think we're seeing that same story play out here again locally where you have a media working people up and saying there's rioters and there's looters in the streets and the Black Lives Matter movement is dangerous. We need to support our cops. And then you have white vigilantes arming themselves and going and shooting Black Lives Matter protesters. It's, it's horrific. Um, it's in no way defensible. And the fact that the GOP would say, well, this is one of our heroes, I think it shows where they stand. They stand in that ugly vein of American history that has sought to perpetuate white supremacy and use violence in order to accomplish its goals. All right. You said, and I, I wrote it down, divide our company, a country to maintain power. Do you think it will work for the Republicans? Well, I'll say this, you know, when black people came out and voted, when Latinos came out and voted, when young people came out and voted in droves for Barack Obama, we were saying at that point in time, the GOP is dead. We were saying they were dead because we were saying if you look at the demographics, there's no way that they can stay in office. Unfortunately, Hillary was our nominee in 2016, did not excite that same coalition that elected Obama twice, and we saw the election of Donald Trump. If white 
older people are the only ones that vote, Donald Trump is going to win. So right now I'm rallying and urging everyone to take this very seriously. Look, I'm no fan of Biden. I don't like him. Um, but I am settling for him because the alternative is the white supremacist violence that we're seeing right now and an administration that not just stokes that violence, but feeds off that violence and perpetuates that violence with actual policies from the White House that target trans people, that target immigrants. And there's no doubt that, you know, the Obama administration and Biden uh, and Biden as vice president targeted immigrants, but not in the same way that Donald Trump is doing it. So I'm urging everyone get out and vote for Biden. Uh, like your life depends on it. It's interesting to hear you say that, Carlos. We had uh, Troy LaRavie was on the show the other day. He said the same thing. Uh, he was passionate about it. He's a Bernie supporter, as are you, a big-time Bernie supporter, Carlos Ramirez yeah. is. Uh, and uh, Troy LaRavie was a delegate in 2016. He goes, I love Bernie, but this is it's, it's all hands on deck for this one. And as a lefty, I feel the same way. I don't, the sense of urgency I have, Carlos, for this election. And I don't, I don't even like Joe Biden. <laughs> you know what oh, I'm saying, no, Carlos? Yeah, but I, hey, I'm a Biden guy right now. I mean, because you're riding I just, with Biden. I'm riding with Biden uh, and Kamala, and I'm drinking That's huge right. quantities of the Kamala Kool Aid. Uh, <laughs> no, don't, because it, don't drink the Kool Aid. Don't drink it. You can vote for them without okay. drinking. <laughs> okay. Well, the, the, first things first, before I get to the fight after uh, Joe Biden is elected, if he's elected, uh, first things first uh, to get him elected. And you mentioned Hillary Clinton 2016. And I recall so many lefty friends of mine just uh, were not, not so unexcited uh, by her and her candidacy, uh, they either talked about not voting or actually didn't vote. What's your sense of your political community uh, coming into this uh, November election? Well, you know, um, I'm 31 years old, um, and uh, I have a lot of friends that are millennials. Uh, Increasingly, I have a lot of political friends that are in their early 20s that are Zoomers, as we call them. Um, And I will say that for quite some time, a lot of the discourse has been very negative towards Biden, Um, a lot of equivocation between Biden and Trump. Um, And all of those critiques are true in many ways, right? They talk about, you know, how in some ways Biden will actually be worse when it comes to foreign policy. Um, Apparently, he's going to be able to be uh, to do competent coups across the globe again. Um, They talk about, uh, you know, uh, his record on incarceration. All of those critiques are true. Um, but I, I think that the, the events of the past week um, have really underscored and underlined that we are dealing with a president who has totally gone rogue, who has thrown any sense of decorum, any you know veneer of uh, quote unquote normalcy to the side. You can just look at his use of the White House last night as a background, as a prop for his political propaganda. I mean, we are going towards fascism. I see a lot of times people talk about, you know, um, that that as a society or as a government moves towards fascism, that there's never going to be really one moment where you say fascism has arrived, right? Because it's it's like death by a thousand cuts. It's it's little by little 
we we drift towards a, a state that is is totally barbaric and violent and oppressive, um, and and I think that we're beginning to to see that 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 is arriving. You know, with Trump just using the White House as a backdrop, as a backdrop yeah. for his political propaganda. No president has ever done that before. To have giant Trump twenty twenty signs on the lawn. Um, you know, to, to be having a party cheering on a, a white vigilante uh, in this day and age, this is very scary. And so I think I, I've seen a lot of the critique of Biden and Kamala become tempered. And I've seen a lot of that redirected towards the president and towards his party to say, all right, we got to get serious because we have to defend our democracy and we have to defend the lives of our trans siblings, of our immigrant siblings. Because let's remember, who do these white vigilantes go after? You know, there was a shooting in the Southwest where one of his white vigilantes went over, went after Latinos. We've seen them go after uh, black communities, black churches. So there's really a sense now of, of, of going after, you know, Jewish synagogues. So there's really a sense now that we've got to get together and we've got to totally stop Trump, get him out of office, and then turn towards uh, offense and get off of de- uh, defense. I absolutely agree with you. All right. Uh, let's talk about the convention, the Republican convention. It's a little get a little specific. Uh, Donald Trump employed black people to send the message. He had Tim Scott show up and the former football player uh, Herschel Walker showed up. Uh, not so many uh, Hispanics or uh, Latinos. I guess the, the uh, Jeanette Nunez from Florida was one. I can't think of any others offhand, Carlos. What message do you think he was trying to send is out she, when he brought Jeanette out a Tim Scott? Was, was she the Puerto Rican woman who, who thought she was an immigrant? And says she was uh, the first I, generation of American. Yeah, no, I, I think that was somebody else. Um, it may have been totally her, wrong. I, uh, For your listeners that are unaware, um, Puerto Ricans are U.S. citizens. They've been so since World War One, when they valiantly fought uh, in Europe. Uh, and uh, if you are born Puerto Rican, you are born a U.S. citizen, and therefore, then you are a migrant. Right. You're moving from one place in a country to another place in a country. You are not an immigrant. Um, yes. But the, the token Latina that Trump had speech apparently does not even know her own history. Yeah, I um, I'm not sure. Uh, I'm looking her up right now. And uh, she's the lieutenant governor of Florida. That's the woman I saw speak. But uh, anyway, what, what, what message do you think Donald Trump was trying to send when he used people like Tim Scott and Herschel Walker uh, to beam out? Well, look, Trump is an entertainer. Um, I think the Republican Party, uh, starting in 2016 with Breitbart, knows how to whip their base into a frenzy, uh, knows to have a concerted message that they repeat over and over again. I thought it was really interesting that the party, one, had no platform, right? Which is like, this is just a cult of personality at this point. Like, you literally, they passed a resolution that was a letter that was like, we don't need a platform because, you know, Trump is great and make America great again. Um, but we know the policies that Trump has been passing. They're policies that uh, have not drained the swamp, uh, that have increased corporate power, that enrich himself and his families and select corporations, um, which is really scary to see, you know, hey, guess what? These corporations are ready to support fascism, just like they were in Germany in uh, the 1930s. Um, interesting how history repeats itself. But um, I think what we've seen is that um, instead of talking about those policies, right, and, and trying to present a strong-throated, you know, defense of uh, the economic policies that they've pursued, 
Um, instead, we get so much of this culture warrior and, you know, kind of dealing with these notions of, you know, what does it mean to be on welfare and who is the internal enemy and who are we fighting against and rioting and looting. Um, so it, it very much played to those those base impulses um, to work people up into a frenzy. Um, and again, I, I think that's very scary because um, it shows that Trump and, and his ilk will seek to divide us as a country, uh, are not afraid to, to see violent acts, to employ violence um, if it keeps them in office and allows them to continue to profit off of that office and allow them to use their positions to empower uh, connected lobbyists and connected, you know, corporate uh, uh, ultra-wealthy individuals uh, with the power that, that they have. One of the things that they're trying to do to scare people into voting for them, and uh, and as you point out, hold on to the power, uh, is to use lefties. And I call myself a lefty. I use use that term ironically. Oh, I have to tell you this. That sometimes I quoted you in a story where they go lefties and they put it in quotes uh, like we were some weird breed what? of subspecies. Yeah, you didn't see that. Uh, it was in the sun. You were and quoted. I, I you and Stacey Davis to that twice because I'm a southpaw. So I'm actually a left-handed person. So I'm a lefty in multiple <laughs> different ways. But, You're um, literally a lefty. Uh, so, all right. So they they use us to scare people into voting for them. And one of the catchphrases they put out there all the time is defund the police. You've been on that show several times talking about defunding the police. This, this goes back to conversations, Carlos, we had before you were reelected uh, back in, I guess, 2018. Uh, so what are you still believing in defund the police as uh, a movement and as a, uh, a slogan for the movement? Or are you having second thoughts about it? You know, um, I've been involved in, in protests and organizing, whether it be to support workers, whether it be to support undocumented immigrants. Um, whether it be to support uh, renters um, for uh, over a decade now uh, in the city of Chicago. And I've seen hundreds of thousands of people take to the streets in 2006 to protest the uh, anti-immigrant sensing burner bill, which was historic. Um, and then I've seen a dozen people show up and I've seen 10 people show up. I have not seen this level of consistent concerted activity where you have a thousand people show up for a rally that was called that same day, which we had a thousand people show up to a Chicago vigil for black lives that was held um, earlier this week to stand with Kenosha, uh, to stand uh, with uh, all the victims of, of white supremacist violence. Um, that event was organized earlier that day, just hours earlier. And it was organized by black queer uh, women uh, and black queer leaders. And so, there's movement, there's a real movement. There's no denying that people are fed up uh, with a racist and unconstitutional uh, policing system that takes precious black lives. And um, people are increasingly becoming police abolitionists, right? They're saying this system uh, is not tenable. And we have to understand the United States has not always had police. There was a time in this country where we didn't have police. The uh, advent of police occurs, one, in the South with slave catching patrols, and two, on the North, 
with uh, the Pinkertons. Essentially, right, the, the capitalist class started saying, hey, we have all these immigrant workers up north. They're getting a little unruly. We're going to hire private security guards. And then at some point they said, you know what, why are we carrying the cost of this? Let's pass it up to the public sector. Uh, and that's really the advent of the police um, in the you know, uh, 1830s and 1840s in uh, the U.S. So there was a time when we didn't have police. And, and as someone who believes in social and economic justice and someone that believes that we can fundamentally change this world, I think that it's important that leftists, radicals, revolutionaries, people that believe in justice, that they envision a, a time when we won't need police, when we have so fundamentally changed the structure of our society and made it one that is equal and egalitarian, um, that we don't need these coercive state uh, structures. Uh, that extrajudicially murder people in the streets to tell them to stay in their place. Um, and when you talk to people about public safety, because everyone wants to be safe, right? When you talk to people about public safety, what they talk about is a desire um, to uh, be safe from violence. And the research shows that the best way to accomplish that is by investing in after-school programs, job programs, mental health services. And when you talk to people about, you know, hey, do you want public safety? Do you want to invest in proven public safety strategies rather than investing in more police? Everyone that I speak to overwhelmingly uh, across the board uh, supports that position, and the polling uh, certainly reflects that as well. Carlos, uh, several times you come on my show and you talked about how in your first term uh, from 2015-2019, you were in many cases a lone voice you were the only vote, I think, against the police academy. Correct me if I'm wrong. I think you were the only vote against the police academy on that TIF deal uh, during the Mayor Rahm days. Uh, and the other aldermen were chiding you. In the aftermath of the unrest that occurred in Chicago, uh, did aldermen chide you on this issue? Did they say, oh, look at your defund the police movement now? Did you get any of that from your uh, you know, colleagues you know in the Chicago City I- Council? I didn't get any of that, um, but some of my colleagues did. Um, and I'm not going to name names because it's their story to tell. Um, but yeah, some of my uh, progressive leftist colleagues got text messages from some of our right wing uh, colleagues saying, is this what you wanted? Um, and, and I think it's just so disingenuous. And so, um, you know, I, I think that now there's new kids on the block that are getting some of that heat. So. I get to be the dean. (laughs) (laughs) Where they they figure it's just not worth their time? I I don't know. Or, you know, um, yeah, I don't don't know why they're not uh, texting me uh, and why they're texting these mean things to my colleagues. Who knows? What's what's your response to them? I mean, if they had said it, what would you... Oh, it's it's nonsense. if, If we could sit down and have a reasoned conversation and talk about what are the root causes of violence? What are the variables at play here? What does the research say? Then I think that we would be able to find common ground and find a shared understanding of what our current situation is, which can then help us build towards policy solutions that are informed by research and data. Um, One of the great things about this pandemic is that it has given a lot more people access to JSTOR, which is, of course, an online service where you have a lot of academic articles on there. Uh, I've used this pandemic to 
re-familiarize uh, myself with JSTOR and reading peer-reviewed academic articles, there is a consistent link that points to causality between poverty, growing income inequality, and rising crime. Uh, the Gini coefficient, which looks at income inequality within a nation, is consistently used to help predict when there's going to be uprisings or when there's going to be revolts or looting or civil unrest. The U.S. for quite some time has had a Gini coefficient that's just a smidge above uh, kind of that danger zone. Uh, there's no doubt in my mind that the tens of millions of jobs that we have lost, uh, that the, the disinvestment from the middle class and the just poverty and misery that so many people find themselves in, the U.S. has been a ticking time bomb for a very long time. And so when I see looting, when I see civil unrest, I'm not surprised given the conditions that exist in and around us. And you're not going to stop that looting. To some of my colleagues or to some of the people in the press who feel like the way to address that looting is to get on a high horse and yell about how this is wrong and immoral and it must stop, that's not going to address the underlying issues here. That's not a solution. It might make you feel good. It might help you pander to the crowd and uh, assuage the fears of your residents or neighbors that are in a panic, but it's actually not going to change anything. And as a matter of fact, if we go back to what I was talking about earlier about whipping people into a frenzy that helps them support this white supremacist violence, I think it's a similar thing. If you have days and days and days of hysterical headlines about the looting, the looting, the looting, Black Lives Matter looting, are we then surprised that you have a 17-year-old driven by his mom with an AR-15 to quote-unquote stop the looting in Kenosha? So that's what I would say to them is let's look at the research Let's be realistic. Let's talk about what's actually going on. And then let's talk about real solutions to make all of us more safe. And quite frankly, it means jobs. It means crisis. But they don't want to hear that. They just want to yell about nonsense. By the way, I have to tell you, listening to you, uh, what you had to say, this is how much in denial the Republican Party is right now. I'm going to move away from Chicago for a moment. Uh, last month, I think it was, I'm losing track of time, Carlos. Uh, uh, Congresswoman uh, Ocasio-Cortez was accosted by Ted Yoho, the um, congressman, I believe, from Florida. I don't know if you follow this one. We talked a lot about this on the show. Yeah. Uh, she gave that passionate speech on the floor. Yeah, yeah. And he originally set upon her because he said, what you just said, I said that that there's a correlation, which is the, it sounds like the most obvious thing in the world to me, between crime and poverty. He that's what got him so mad. He said she was crazy to say that. That's what began the their exchange. I don't know if you know that, but uh, and then he took it a went beyond that to an insane world where Republicans reside. But this is the level of denial that. Democratic legislators are confronted yeah. when they try to come up with a solution that would uh, attack the core of the problem. And, and you know what? I, I, part of me thinks that some of these Republicans or right-wingers, even moderates, because what, this one media personality uh, that writes for Cranes who was yelling at Kim Fox, I'm not going to say his name because I don't you know, want to promote him in that way, but he was yelling at Kim Fox, says, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Um, and, and yelling about the looting, and then he's going after me and saying, Alderman, are you going to condemn the looting? Are you going to condemn the looting? Um, he then goes on and tweets out, uh, I would vote for Barack Obama for a third term. And I'm just like, oh, my God. Like, all right. Um, 
But but so so that goes to show that it's not just Republicans, right? It's it's moderates, it's some liberals. Um, but but I feel like they have a sense of um, what's going on. I think they fundamentally understand that when you reach a certain level of poverty and misery in a society, it's a, a powder uh, keg uh, that, that is a ticking time bomb. Um, but I think they don't want to support the policy solutions that, that you would then need to support to address that in a human and loving way. Instead of providing housing and food to people, they want to lock them up and put them in jail. And it's, it's this sense of, you know, if you're poor, that's your fault. I think that's where that comes from, this whole sense of, you know, don't rely on the state, don't rely on the commons, don't rely on the public to provide you with anything. If you're poor, that is your own personal failing, and you should shut up and either work in this rat race to get out of that current situation, or if not, you know, you should be criminalized and starve. Uh, it's why they don't want to see homeless people on the street, right? And they, they want homeless people to be arrested. Um, I, I think this is rooted in this very barbaric approach to society um, that, that is quite frankly a, a world that, that the vast majority of people do not want to live in. They don't want to live in that world where, you know, um, your options are jail cell uh, or working for poverty wages. By the way, I think I know who that uh, Crane's calmness is. Uh, I used to play <laughs> poker with him a long time ago. Uh, he's a terrible poker player, by the way. Uh, all right, uh, let's uh, get let's go local uh, and uh, shift gears. Talk a little local politics. I want to ask you about the National Guard resolution. Uh, fascinating story that took place in the Chicago City Council. And for all my out-of-town listeners, we have a lot of out-of-town listeners, I'll help you as much as I can. And I always tell my out-of-town listeners, you can really understand how politics works by studying Chicago City Council and the relationship between the mayor and the city council. It's particularly illustrative uh, when you see the dynamic of Republicans in Congress and how they bow down, do whatever uh, Donald Trump tells them. So there's some parallels to Chicago. But before we get there, I have to ask you this. Uh, you are the alderman of the 35th Ward. The 35th Ward is Logan Square uh, on the north, near northwest side of Chicago. And one of your constituents, is, I, I believe, is Mayor Lori Lightfoot. And uh, she, uh, <laughs> I'm not sure she voted for you, but she's one of your constituents. Uh, she did not vote and, for <laughs> Well, you don't know. You weren't in the booth. We, um, well, but, this, we, yeah. so there's, there's texting that you can do as a campaign. And um, a few days before the day of the election, she popped up in one of the volunteers' like text um, uh, cues, and so they texted her, and she responded and was like, "I'm not voting for him." So, oh man, life! Well, come on, man! This kid's a Chicago grad, Whitney Young <laughs> High School. Was, and, thank you, <laughs> thank you, thank you. Born and raised in the city of Chicago. Come on now. And for your national listeners, Whitney Young, home of the Dolphins, is also, you know, the, the alma mater of uh, Michelle Obama. That's correct. So, you know, we, we love us, uh, Michelle, and we love Whitney Young. Whitney but, Young. Um, I was All more right, so Mayor that days before. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, she, she said that, that, that no protesters outside her house there's going to be a security zone uh, established there we've been talking about this on the show i was wondering what i've not seen you quoted on this i'm just curious what your thoughts are on this i, I have no comment 
I have never in my life heard Carlos Ramirez Roses say, I have no comment. I don't even know what to do. I'm like, what do you mean? You have, you have a comment about everything. Well, I will say, um, obviously our mayor has a right to be safe and to be protected. And her child deserves that and her spouse deserves that. Her neighbors deserve that. Under Mayor Rahm Emanuel, people had mocked diamonds on his front lawn where they'd lay down. Um, and there'd be, you know, three or four police officers on his front porch ensuring that people did not approach his house. Um, I've heard a number of complaints uh, from my constituents who have said, I have undocumented family members and um, I'm afraid for them because when they come on, when they get within two blocks of their house, because we live next to, you know, Mayor Lightfoot, they're being asked by very rude police officers to show their papers. I've had neighbors um, who have said I've been harassed, uh, who have felt that, you know, if they leave the house without an ID, that they won't be able to get back home. I've had others reach out to my office and say, hey, I want to go support the Black Lives Matter protesters that are protesting my neighbor. I want to go support them two blocks away because that's as close as they can get to her. I want to support them two blocks away, but I'm afraid that if the police see me leave my house, house to go join the protest that they're not going to let me back in uh, later on in the evening. So I have very uh, serious concerns uh, that relate to the quality of life of my own residents that I represent. Um, I also have concerns that relate to the First Amendment. Um, and um, I, I mean, I think the fact that neighbors came forward and said, uh, you know, this is Fort Laurie. We have serious complaints about it. Um, was a good thing. I'm, I'm glad that they didn't just raise those concerns to me, but they also raised them publicly. And I hope that, you know, we'll see some changes as a result of that. Um, I, I think we can find a balance between protecting the mayor, but also ensuring that residents who live nearby are able to enjoy their own homes and their own neighborhoods. Um, and at the same time that we're protecting people's First Amendment rights. I don't think we've quite found that balance quite yet, but I'm hopeful that people coming forward and speaking up and raising their voices will get us there. Carlos, you went from no comment to about two <laughs> minutes of comments. <laughs> hey, man, this guy was a champion debater, Whitney Young. I'm just going to, Mayor Lori Lightfoot, you didn't know that when you didn't vote for him. He was a champion debater. That was very well done. Um, all right, let's talk about this. is a fascinating story, and uh, I, I know you could really tell, do justice to it. Uh, the National Guard resolution, I was out of town, so I missed this debate. It caught me off guard, uh, Carlos, because I didn't think there was going to be a meeting. I didn't think there was going to be a meeting, a city council meeting. And uh, once a month or after every city council meeting, Dave Gloatz comes on my show and we break down what happened in the council. We have clips that we play and we discuss and analyze. It's a very popular feature in the show. And Dave and I were like, oh, there's no meeting. And all of a sudden, <laughs> what? I say what? Yeah. I'm always the last to know. So explain uh, how this meeting came about and uh, what took place. Go ahead. So uh, the city council under our city charter, we are meant to be the dominant branch. It's supposed to be a strong council, weak mayor system. As a result of, you know, a very complicated history uh, over time through practice, We've had a very strong imperial mayor and a very docile and weak city council that essentially allows the mayor to do everything um, and, and the council serves as a rubber stamp. Um, previously, our council rules of order and procedures said that any three aldermen could call a meeting of the city council to say, hey, city council, we got to meet, put out the bat signal. Um, and then if there was a quorum, the council would meet. If there was no quorum, the 
aldermen that showed up to the meeting could discuss things, could accept testimony, um, but they couldn't vote on anything. Um, so some years ago, uh, some progressives like uh, Joe Moore and Tony Prentwickel at that time and others, under Daly II, they would call these special meetings from time to time. Their colleagues would never show up, but there would be three or four aldermen there and they would you know, essentially have a rally with residents and say, hey, these are important issues that the council needs to hear uh, and, and, need to, and discuss. Um, recently, those rules were changed to state that you could no longer do that, that uh, if uh, three aldermen called a special meeting and a quorum didn't show up, the meeting had to be immediately gaveled out and you wouldn't even have an opportunity to, you know, debate and discuss whatever it is that you wanted to talk about. So um, three, actually four of my colleagues called a special meeting um, and the purpose that they stated that the special meeting was called for was to discuss a resolution dealing, primarily to discuss a resolution dealing with calling in the National Guard to deal with uh, the situation as they saw it in Chicago. Um, and then a fourth, of, uh, a fourth colleague signed on to this uh, uh, special meeting notice, but they did it just because they said, hey, I feel like we as a council need to be independent and we need a meet to discuss these things. I don't agree with that resolution. I'm prepared to vote it down. Uh, but I, I think that we should be discussing these things as a city council. Um, and so the Progressive Caucus talked about it, uh, the Latino Caucus talked about it, Black Caucus talked about it, all the started talking about it, and we decided that we were going to show up. And so um, while a majority of us, based upon the conversations that I had, did not support calling in the National Guard, we felt that it was important for us as a city council to assert that independence, to say we are an equal governing branch. We don't need Mayor Lightfoot or any mayor, whether that was Rahm or Daly, to be the ones uh, that exclusively call meetings. We can and will call a meeting when we feel that we need to. Uh, and uh, that's exactly uh, what was done. Now, did uh, Mayor Lori Lightfoot attempt uh, to discourage people from showing up or uh, participating? She did. She did. And, and, then, and it wasn't until the night before, uh, late, in, late at night, that she suddenly reversed course and said, I'm attending the meeting. And the reason why is because she hadn't attended the meeting, uh, then, because uh, under our city charter uh, and rules of order procedure, she's the presiding officer of our council, uh, which is a very strange thing. In New York, that's not the case. They have their own council president, um, it obviously creates an impediment to having an independent counsel by having her as a presiding officer. Uh, but uh, had she not showed up, then an, an, another alderman would have been the presiding officer. And so I think at that point she realized that, um, that there was going to be quorum. And for her to continue to exert leadership uh, over the process, she then had no choice but to show. Who would have been the alderman that would have presided if she had not showed up? Do you know? Well... Up until like 9 p.m. at night the day before, it seemed like it was going to be Tom Tunney uh, because uh, he is the vice mayor, uh, if I remember correctly. And so the order of succession, not succession, but in terms of presiding over the council would be the mayor, followed by the president pro tem, who would be Brendan Riley, who at that point was going to stick with the mayor and not show. And then after that would have been the vice mayor, who's uh, Tom Tunney. And, and Tom Tunney said he was going to show up? That's my understanding, yeah. 
Yeah, Tom Tunney, uh, for listeners, is the alderman of the 44th Ward. He's best known as the owner of a restaurant called Ann Sather's. And uh, he was a mayoral loyalist, to put it mildly, during the days of Rahm and uh, Daly. So I'm a little surprised to hear that he was willing to show up. Uh, and look, but, uh, I, I, I can't speak for anyone other than myself. I do know that a lot of aldermen uh, have talked about the desire to, to see more collaboration from Mayor Lightfoot. Um, I think that some aldermen just also just wanted to show that, look, we can call our own meeting. And if you're not from Chicago, you're probably listening to this and thinking, what a sad situation. Oh. <laughs> this is what an advancement for democracy. The, the legislative branch called its own meeting. Um, <laughs> baby takes its first step. Um, but... But, um, but in the sense that, you know, for so long, the city council's capacity to, to govern and to be a co-equal branch of government has been hampered in so many different ways. For this council to do that, it, it, this is, it was historic. No, this um, is a big moment. Didn't see it under wrong. Yeah, yeah, it was huge. Yeah. By, by the way, let me just say something. I, and I, and I, uh, we do have a lot of listeners from out of town, and I think they really get a kick out of Chicago politics. And I, I say this all the time, so I'm going to repeat it. The Chicago City Council was such a, is such a rubber stamp of the mayor that the mayor essentially picks the chairman and the chairwomen of the committees in the city council. So if you want to be a chairperson in the Chicago city council, you have to be a mayoral loyalist. That'd be as if Donald Trump were to tell Nancy Pelosi who to select to be a chair of a, of a yeah. congressional committee. That's what it's like. That, that is what it's like in Chicago. And I have been Mick Dumpkin myself, my dear friend, Mick Dumpkin. We have been railing about this, Carlos, since you were in grammar school, since before yeah. you were at Whitney Young. And, you know, it's still, it's to no avail. But I will say this. I do believe, Carlos, I do believe that the city council, as it's now constituted in the age of Mayor Lori Lightfoot, is more independent than the Senate, the U.S. Senate, in relationship to Donald Trump. Do you agree with me on that point? Yes. Yes. I, I, I was just thinking about right now, um, you used to have a, a log called Cloud City, right? You and Mick Dumpy. Yes, which yes. Was, uh, a wonderful, excellent, uh, you know, play on words uh, based off of Star Wars. And I was a high school student and I would just devour those articles. It was like in my like bookmarks and I'd be like, gotta go click on Cloud City. So I, I like was, I was, you know, kind of uh, thinking back to that right now. So yeah, um, no man, Carl's man, this guy's, a, he was a young, like a, a phenom man. He'd be reading, <laughs> he was, he was born for this. Uh, so, all right, let's go back to that, um, yeah, Cloud City, the good old days of the O's. All right, so let's go back to that city council meeting that took place last week. So, finally, Mayor Lori Lightfoot sees she can't uh, topple it. It's going to happen. And for whatever reason, Tom Tunney is going to show up and be the – I'm wondering if Tom Tunney didn't show up. Who would get to run the meeting? Do you know? Well, we'll get to that. At, at that point, those – if there were quorum – Amongst each other, we would select a presiding officer. Ah, good. That would have been what a scene that would have been. Like, who would have been, who would have been selected? 
Uh, all right. Uh, so they probably had Tani. If I know the way the city works, it's, it's coming together. They probably picked Tani. They say, Tom, all right, Brendan's not going to do it. You got to show up to make sure that, you know what I'm saying, that Lori's looked out for. Because I just right, can't imagine right. Tom Tunney doing it without the mayor's guidance. Sorry, Tom Tunney fans. And um, uh, so then finally, Lori Lightfoot said, I don't trust Tunney. I'm going to run it. All right. So what what went down at that meeting? So uh, the mayor uh, gavels in the meeting. Uh, she uh, reads the agenda into the record, which was the agenda uh, set by the notice that went out for the special meeting. Um, and then at that point, we begin discussing the first item, which is the National Guard resolution, call in the Guard resolution. And um, the chair of the Public Safety Committee uh, speaks. So it's all stage. She immediately calls on him, right, because she's our presiding officer. So no one gets to digitally raise their hand because she already knows who she's going to call on. So she calls on the chair of the Public Safety Committee, and he says, I'm so incensed that rather than referring this resolution to my committee, uh, and rather than going through our well-established and respected committee process that, you know, you're bringing this up right now, uh, and you're bypassing my committee, and so therefore then I motion to send this to committee. Now... <laughs> The thing is, as you just noted, our mayor selects our committee chairs, and they also set the agenda of committee meetings. So this whole notion of, oh, well, we have this democratic process where, you know, this kid has been heard in committee. That's not true. If the mayor doesn't want to hurt in committee, it's not going to be heard in committee. So um, that, I mean, was a little laughable and offensive. Um, but it, it's all part of the political theater. And so then uh, we begin debating whether or not this should be sent to committee or whether we should uh, vote on it right now. Um, and uh, at that point, uh, a majority voted to send it to committee. Um, and it's a little bit harder to kind of figure out what were the motives as to why people voted the way that they did, which is actually kind of good. You know, no one was voting as a faction, no one was voting as a block. I think that those that were committee chairs uh, were certainly voting as a block, uh, aligned with the mayor, and she wanted it at that point sent to committee. Um, but a number of us progressives uh, did vote uh, to debate and vote on it. Uh, at the special meeting because we felt we don't need to, you know, drag this out. We don't need to give them more ammunition by allowing them to, you know, now demand a committee meeting and, and host a committee hearing. Let's discuss it right now. Let's discuss it and let's vote it down. And uh, based upon my vote count with count, uh, it would have failed that day. But some people voted to send it to committee so that it would die in committee. Other of us just wanted to kill it right then and there. Well, it's it's a really uh, it's an interesting story because to break it down a little more, the the, the merit of the resolution would have been impo was opposed by uh, progressive or uh, social democrats, uh, democratic socialists, excuse me, uh, and would it was supported by the law and order crowd. You know, the calling in to bring in the national guard uh, is, is something out of the Trump playbook. Uh, but the issue of independence is something that I think all aldermen, at least somewhere, you, you know what I'm saying? I mean, they may have beat it, drummed it out of Tom Tani years ago, uh, Carlos, but somewhere in the soul of an alderman, you, you, you got to believe, you know what I mean? You, you didn't run to be a, a rubber stamp. You get what I'm saying? You know what I mean? Yeah. Somewhere. It must burn. It must be like an ember. It could be a low burning ember, but of independence. So, 
you know, yeah, I, I, yeah. I, I just got to feel it. It was interesting when I looked at that vote, there were some uh, progressive type aldermen. Uh, there were uh, Democratic socialists like yourself, Matt Martin uh, from the north side and uh, Maria Haddon from uh, Rogers Park. Voted for and and Maria Haddon's a pacifist, you know. I love Maria. She's not for mm-hmm. bringing the National Guard uh, to Chicago, but she 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 was ready to vote it down. Let's debate it right here. We call the special meeting. We're in session. We can talk about the merits of calling in the National Guard, and uh, let's debate it and let's vote no. Now, I don't understand why does Lori Lightfoot have an opinion one way or the other on bringing the National Guard to Chicago? She's against it, correct? Uh, I believe she's against it. Um, she said that the aldermen that called the meeting and were calling for the National Guard were grandstanding. Um, but, but I think at the end of the day, it's about disciplining the council, keeping it in check, you know, not allowing any measure that, that, that she is opposed to getting a full-throated debate and conversation on the council floor. And, and you know what, that would be consistent with what's happened in the past. So our council was awarded procedures say that each alderman is afforded 10 minutes to discuss on, up to 10 minutes to discuss on any topic. And um, of course, the only things that make it its way through committee are the things that she wants to go through committee because the committee chairs, uh, uh, only notice things and put things on the agenda that the administration wants to be voted on. And then once they make it through committee, they go to the full council floor. And so I wanted to speak on a specific item. And before I even speak, she says quickly, Alderman, you know, because the time to discuss these things is in committee. No, we, I'm not in that committee, right? The time to discuss these things are both within committee, but also when it comes to the full council floor, because there could be matters that were approved by committee that are uh, uh, rejected or opposed by the full city council. Um, and so it's just a very bizarre way of approaching what is meant to be a robust democratic legislative process. A lot of people that misunderstand Robert's rules, which Robert's rules govern our meeting, they think that Robert's rules is to shut down conversation. No, in fact, Robert's rules is to nurture conversation, to ensure that the uh, minority is able to be heard, but at the end of the day, we still have majoritarian uh, control uh, over uh, a decision. Um, and so that, you know, just kind of as someone who has studied Robert's rules as someone who has chaired meetings and, and gone through workshops on Robert's rules, it didn't sit right with me that the mayor would say, keep your comments brief, the time to discuss this is not now. No, this is a full council meeting, the time to discuss it is now. Um, and the public yeah. has a right to hear what our thought process is behind a certain vote that we're taking. Or, or, and also, a lot of the times those discussions do become important. If something is challenged in court, um, or if there, if there is a need to refine a rule or regulation around an ordinance or law that was passed, the courts, uh, the administrative officers tasked with enforcing that will go back to the legislative record and say what was the intent of yes. you know the legislature when they passed this. So yep. these are extremely important conversations, and it just it doesn't sit right with me um, that um, the mayor seemingly does not want those full-throated, robust conversations to happen on the council floor. All right. Well, it. Uh... It was a great moment for independence in the city of Chicago. Little little baby <laughs> steps, Carlos. All the no, exactly, exactly. <laughs> baby steps, man. 
One yeah. day we will uh, we will get the training wheels off. One day. And, but by uh, the way, way before your time, I have to say this. Way before your time, before you were born, in 1983, after Harold Washington was elected, Eddie Verdoliak organized the white aldermen of the Chicago City Council into a coalition that ran the city council. And they had a vote. And their vote prevailed. It was 29 to 21. And Harold Washington was upset, as well he should be, because it's the first time the mayor didn't control the city council. And it was obvious the only reason they organized, the glue that kept them together was race. All right? And he took them to court. And I have to admit, as much as I was for Harold Washington and I was against Eddie Verdoliak, 29 beat 21. And the reality is that the majority prevails. That's how I view the world. That's why I'm so opposed, Carlos, to the Electoral College on the national level. Because Mm -hmm. with the Electoral College, the loser can win. How that happens, I don't know. So that was the only time in my lifetime during those three raucous years of council wars that we had legislative democracy in Chicago. And the tragedy of it is that it was based in uh, racism. And so it gave a bad name to democracy. Go ahead. Right. Right. No, no. And and I agree with you uh, to the extent that I've seen some comments here and there where people say, Oh, this is just like council wars are all over again. People want to oppose our black lesbian mayor. The the reality, however, is that the the strongest critics uh, of the mayor at this moment are people of color, are queer people. Uh, you know, my colleague Rosana Rodriguez, she's a Afro Latina, uh, a, a self-identified queer woman. Uh, who is one of the most vocal critics of the mayor and who was pushing for this special meeting and pushing for us to debate and vote against the National Guard uh, resolution that day. So um, there's a different dynamic at play here. And I think that those that are familiar with council wars and that ugly racist history of Edward Doliak and Ed Burke should not conflate what was happening then with what's happening now. Uh, because it's, it's a totally different ballpark. There's different variables at play here. Um, and, and I will say, there was still legislative democracy under Harold Washington. Um, it's just that now there was a mayor who had a governing majority that was aligned around a progressive vision and values. And I would love to see that in the city of Chicago. I would love to see Lori Lightfoot being the progressive that she told us she was going to be on the campaign trail. And I would be her first vote right there. And I'd be lining up my colleagues to the extent that I could to vote for that agenda. Unfortunately, that's not what we've seen. Um, and um, it's, it's disappointing on a lot of different levels. All right, very good. That's a good uh, place as any to leave it. Carlos Ramirez Rosa, Alderman of the 35th Ward, uh, Democratic Socialist, diehard Bernie Sanders supporter. Uh, and uh, like me, we're waving the flag for Joe Biden at this moment, Carlos. I am with you 100% on that. Uh, what, what did you say? Settling for Biden. Settling. It's got to leave you a little stronger than that. <laughs> Settling for, I don't know, but as a rallying cry, Carlos, you're going to get a lot of people settling for Biden. Look, as Americans, we settle on a spouse, we settle on a house, 
as a blueprint setup for Joe Biden. All right, very good. I, I, I'm with you. I'm I'm for Joe Biden. This moment is a this is a critical moment in American democracy, and uh, you said it well. It was that was the face of fascism at that convention, and you can't take it's a really frightening. Yeah, it's really really frightening. And like I said, we should. Kenosha, Antioch, Illinois, within 60 miles of the city of Chicago. That is our backyard. That is the Chicago metropolitan area. White supremacist terrorism is here, and it's being supported by our president and by the party in power, and that should scare all of us. All right, very good. Carlos, thanks so much for coming on. We'll probably be talking to you next month, all right? Yes, yeah, sounds good. All right, you have a great day. That's Carlos Ramirez Rosa. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody.